Listen, that that is a big number. That's a great number. I, I am optimistic, you know. That's my job. <laughs> this is BoxCast, a conversation about current events, culture, and e-commerce logistics from Pitney Bowes. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is John Kaplow, and I'm going to be your host today for BoxCast, which I think by my count, this is going to be our ninth installment over the last few months here. So we're starting to get some momentum. Hopefully, you guys are enjoying the content. We're enjoying putting it out. It seems like just yesterday uh, that we had our inaugural episode, we were opining about the trials and tribulations of getting orders over to Canada, if I recall right, including... uh, I think Sam was talking about salmon and and maybe even a brand new Ford. But today I'm really excited about the folks joining the discussion to talk about an important topic to us all, sustainability, and how we're going to make sure that this planet is around for our grandkids' grandkids. So I have two special guests today that I'm excited to have join us. Mike McComb, who leads our North American sales team and, of course, is talking to lots of brands and retailers every day. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. All right. All right. And Sylvain Combe, who leads many of our sustainability efforts for Pitney Bowes and is joining us from France today. So, Sylvain, welcome as well. Hi, John. Nice to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Good to get some global representation here. So, guys, for today, I think this is the way we probably want to lay this out is let's do a first tranche of going through some consumer insights. We'll kind of banner around that for a bit. And then, you know, Mike, it would be great to hear from you and, you know, kind of what you're hearing from brands and retailers on the street, partners maybe as well. And then Sylvan, to talk about what Pitney Bowes is doing today in this area and, you know, how it might help other companies in their efforts as as they start to think about going down this journey, I, I think would be great. So does that sound like a plan, guys? Sure, that's great. All right, cool. All right, so let's jump into consumer. And as always, uh, we're coming armed with our stats from BoxPoll, right? And this is our, as a reminder, our weekly consumer polling program. We built this really on behalf of our clients to better understand consumer sentiment around all things e-commerce logistics. The, you know, the fun thing that, that we do, uh, a lot of our client engagement team, as well as a lot of Mike's team, is they're doing QBRs or as we're onboarding clients they will often have questions that we can put in front of this poll of 2,000 consumers in the U.S. that we ask questions every week. And so it's been a fun program to kind of interact, come in and out with those brands and retailers and help them better understand what consumers are thinking and saying. And so th- this has been a, a very successful program. And obviously, we've spun it off to podcasts and other content as well. So we're happy to get this going. So I think the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about is a little bit of a rip off from Scott Galloway. We, we love him, but it's this idea of the uh, seeing the great dispersion unfold as COVID kind of tore through. And that's really this dynamic of people moving from high density cities to, you know, less density cities, rural locations, suburban locations, you know, depending upon where you're coming from. Of course, because we all know the proliferation of work is really changing due to the pandemic. And I, I will tell you firsthand, I don't know, it was March 2020, we started to really think about our New York City office. There, there were so many people that inevitably over the next six months moved away that, that we ended up closing the office. Uh, so we felt it 
very personally uh, from a Pitney Bowes standpoint. The problem with this great dispersion from a sustainability, from a logistics standpoint, is that as those people move out to further away from those dense areas, it's putting more private carriers on the road for rural last mile delivery, which is not a good thing. And I think, Mike, you would probably also remind folks that it's not just about the sustainability. Some of those private carriers also have some extra fees that they charge to get those parcels out there, some of the DAS, some of the EDAS. But the reality is, is that we know that there's really only one carrier that is already going to every household six days a week anyway. So no new routes to increase emissions. And of course, that's the USPS. And, you know, with their recent Delivering for America plan, they're also beginning to take more strides in better managing the footprint of the fleet with uh, a whole new fleet of trucks that, that are going to be more efficient. Some percentage of those are going to be electric over the next 10 years. So this was something that we have seen. It's obviously been written about a lot, but when you think about it in the terms of e-commerce logistics, it's a big change. Mike, I don't know if you're hearing anything from clients or you have a point of view on this great dispersion, but it, it is a real dynamic that hit since pandemic. So I'll pause there to see if you had any thoughts to add. Yeah, John, it's a great point to bring up. And also, I think it has brands looking at where should they even distribute from, where sometimes you've got bi-coastal distribution centers, you've got maybe three regionalized distribution centers or a center point of distribution. And, you know, when you've got a big population, I think you look at a network that perhaps was designed five years ago and it, it worked pretty well. But as you see that great migration to more rural areas, you're, you're exactly right. You know, with other carriers, there could be delivery area surcharges where you've got an additional fee, but it's more than that, right? I mean, if you're working with a, a carrier that has decided to put on more routes with either contractors or their own trucks, you're adding more Frankly, I mean, you're burning more fuel and you're you're adding more carbon to that equation to make a delivery, as, as you just talked about with the USPS and the Postal Reform Act that was just signed into that guaranteeing that parcel delivery is going to continue, mail delivery is going to continue every house in America six days a week. So why not just leverage that, right? I think, and it's interesting, talking to some of the bigger brands, they have a realization of that too. I mean, it's it goes from where the consumer is seeing a much higher percentage of their overall sales go as e-commerce. They're questioning as well where their current distribution centers are. We've got a large uh, footwear and apparel sports company that they had opened up a second distribution center in Southern California to really accommodate because all the containers were also coming in and then it would get cross-docked and sent across to the East Coast for redistribution you know, to their consumers. And yet, if you had a client in California, you'd have to send it all the way back to California. So, you know, talking to another large company, they're looking at the same thing. You know, should they open up a, a DC in um, Southern California area? And then as well, trying to figure that out. You know, the, the comment was, you know, do I really need my running shoes overnight? Or can I look at moving things via ground and understanding that because they, they have a supply chain issue where they talk about if we have to move something via air is 45 times worse for our carbon footprint air than ocean. And I asked that question, well, what about on your final money? So you're exactly right. I mean, I don't want to have to fly my goods to reach a one day or a two day footprint from the southeast to somebody that's in the west coast. It doesn't make any sense. So I think brands are looking at it. There's a cost impact. 
even the consumers as well. I mean, you do have to ask yourself, do I need this today, tomorrow, or can I take it a bit with less carbon footprint impact and, and wait a few days? Yeah, well, listen, that's a that's a really, really good segue into the whole body of work uh, that I want us to run through on exactly some sentiment from consumers, right? So besides this being the right thing to do for the planet, I think we all agree there, you know, merchants and brands are often wondering how does this actually impact consumer buying intentions, right? And so we've asked uh, several questions in this theme over, you know, the, the last several months. We will continue to ask questions. We have trackers that we're also kind of watching the trends over time. Let me start to throw out a couple ones that I cherry picked here that I thought would be good for this conversation. So first out of the gate is how important is sustainability in the consumer buying decision process? Probably one of the core questions that a merchant might want to ask. And you know, I don't want to discount the doing the right thing for the planet, but you know, from a demand standpoint, a brand building standpoint, there is a significant value there too. And so we wanted to try and quantify that a little bit. So let's call these these shoppers our sustainability shoppers. Anyone want to take a guess? Sylvan, you want to take a guess on uh, to what percentage of consumers have sustainability as a, as a value in their buying decision process? Any guesses? That's a tough one because what we've seen in the past is there might be a very genuine interest in, in these questions as long as it remains sort of theoretical. But when you arrive at the, at the, at the checkpoint, it's a bit different. So if I were to venture a guest, uh, I would hope because I'm very optimistic, uh, 60%. Okay. Okay. That Listen, that that is a big number. That's a great number. I, <laughs> I am optimistic, you know, <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> it's Hey, you're close, man. You're close. What I would say is I'm going to give you our number. I have seen some other studies. The number is a little higher. Where, where we came out was almost 40%, 38%. And let me break that down for you. So 38%, we are calling sustainability shoppers. 10% of those people, it is a critical part of their buying decision process. There's another 28% that would say they are more inclined to buy products with environmentally friendly features. So summing that up, it's it's nearing 40%. Like I said, I, I actually have seen a couple other studies where their number is higher. And I think as we go through this conversation, one, one of the things that will you know clearly come out is this is only going to become more, more and more important, especially with the younger generations, which we're going to talk about as well. And some of the stratification and some of the, the answers that we're getting here, there is a, a lot to be um, proud of for our young cohorts because they are they are taking this seriously. And so so we need that. So let's keep chugging. So, so on the heels of that last one, thinking about environmentally friendly features for products, right, as as merchants think about what they could do to you know, put forward a, a sustainability theme, we asked them, consumers, what are the two top features in a given product that would cause you to p- perhaps purchase it? These would be things like sustainably produced, could be carbon offsets, could be an environmental certification. And so we, we put this list in, in front of folks. I'll tell you guys where we landed on the top here. So the, t- the top two sustainably produced, but also products that use sustainable materials, those were at the top of the list as features for a given product. At the other side of the list, things like carbon offset, things like environmental certification, those were a little bit less. As I read those results, the way that I took it was those top ones are things that you have a better uh, a sense of. You know, it's, it's you can observe it in the product itself. I think it's a little harder when you read about, you know, perhaps carbon offset or things like that. So, yeah, you're right. 
maybe it gets a bit too technical to some extent, what is carbon offset? And we have seen some articles that goes one way or another, but quite ambivalent about carbon offset. So I think it is much more tangible. The first two categories that you mentioned are probably much more tangible for, for the average consumer. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, if you're a merchant or brand, take that into consideration as you're building out your sustainability uh, kind of messaging as, as you think about products and, and what are the features that you're going to build into it. Let's keep chugging. We, we got a few on the list here. So this is a cool exercise we do. I, I, th- I think we say this is a little bit like, like Price is Right. So we ask consumers to individually price two exact items. The only difference is that one is packaged uh, sustainably and the other is not. And we wanted to better understand how consumers perceive the price of that packaging, right? Is there, do they see a value there? Is, is there a cost there? The good news is, is they do understand that. So 67% of consumers say sustainable packaging costs more. And we took it a step further and asked, how much more do you think? And the answer was $6. So, you know, kind of starting to get in a little bit of premium territory. So we thought that was interesting, but I'd say even more important was that that packaging had a positive impact in purchasing, again, almost on 40% of the population. So pretty powerful. Besides doing the right thing for the planet, uh, again, it you know will probably pay off in some brand building for consumer loyalty. And it's something to think about as, as brands are thinking about packaging. I don't know, Mike, have you seen any uh, innovative packaging lately that you would call out? Well, I, I think, John, actually a number of our brands, and we've worked with them it's really great when we get to work with them when we do fulfillment and we'll talk them through that. We we have different packaging companies that we work with that create more of a sustainable item. So, you know, sometimes you've had folks that have had large boxes and they really wanted this big box opening experience. But I, I think, you know, that's more now reserved, if you will, for a special gift or perhaps it's a subscription that only comes out once a month, once a quarter, something like that. But if it's a standard e-commerce order, most of the brands also realize, you know, they they want the packaging to be as tight, as small as possible. Uh, we've helped brands to, to use 100% post-consumer recycled material, for example. We've had brands that we've talked to where uh, instead of maybe plastic poly mailers, they've gone to a recycled paper mailer, as a for example. We've had one brand that really embraced it and, you know, hey, I want even soy-based ink and, and things like that. Supercoop, one of our products, you know, our customers, they they talked about over time that they went from having, you know, bubble wrap and things like that to a recyclable paper inside the package. And then they looked at their package themselves and, you know, it can the product itself be recycled, the the package right but you know they're you know supergroup does it's inside as well like wait, what you put on your face and they had this whole it's the five p's passion product purpose people and our planet and so everything that they do they ask that question how does it apply so i think you know we're constantly talking to our brands about this and i think look the other thing is you know you can go to hashtag packaging fail or whatever it is right everybody and people are posting like why is it i ordered these little batteries for my camera or something and it came in a box that's you know the size of two bread boxes or something it doesn't make any sense and sometimes and you feel guilty about that when why do you have to then you know, recycle your boxes or whatever. Why can't it be in the smallest footprint possible? So I think consumers are demanding it and brands are recognizing it. And 
you know, we like to be part of that solution to help them work through it. Yeah, 100% agree. Thanks for that. I think to make the, the connection between the topic of, uh, of packaging and the one before in terms of a carbon footprint, and that might explain the result of the, of the first numbers that you, uh, that you mentioned, the packaging is something extremely tangible for the consumer. At the end of the day, at the end of the purchase, when the, the item is received, the packaging is there. They need to do something with it. They need to dispose of it. So ideally, they can reuse it somehow. So it, it helps if the packaging has this sort of a consideration for can be reused for something else. But the consumer is left with the packaging. So it we need to think about that. In terms of a carbon footprint, you could make a link with climate change, with uh, all sorts of uh, natural and disasters that what, what we see and witness regularly. But the, the link is somehow distant, where packaging, it's there, it's on your table. Now you need to do something about it. And if it is well-designed, it can be reused, it can be recycled, then that is completely different from the situation where you can't do anything with it, you just have to chuck it in the bin and it's full of plastic and you can't really, you don't exactly know what to do. In some geographies, and, and I'm, we mentioned that uh, I'm based in France, I can see a lot of attention paid by the legislator on packaging and what we call extended producer responsibility. So the company who places packaging on the market is responsible for its disposal through all sorts of legislative means. So there is a recognition in some countries, and all countries are moving in the same direction at different speeds. So I know that it's, 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 it's going to be there. And eventually that as a producer, as a, as a vendor, as a seller, you have a responsibility for what you have placed on the market. So it is quite important if we are able to, to help our partner finding and identifying the best way to deal with uh, this packaging. Yeah, yeah, I I think, Sylvan, it, it is the case that, as you said, the I'll just say the EU for a minute, that that regulation is, is in place. And I, I want to say that we haven't gone that far in the US, I think. I think we're trying to push it forward. It's, it, it's, it's something I think that we need to have and we will get there. But I think you guys are, are leading on that you know, kind of responsibility on, on disposal for sure. You know, as we were talking, uh, I was thinking about an example because, you know, what you were also describing is that brand moment of opening a box, the e-commerce experience, a moment of truth, right? And, you know, obviously the product itself you want to deliver as a merchant, but we've been talking about the packaging as well, which is also a moment, a branding moment. And it reminded me of someone who does a really good job with this that uh, I figured I would just share, which is Nespresso, right? So I got a Nespresso machine, I don't know, a year ago or something, it was something for my birthday. And I had had a Keurig before, but tried Nespresso and, and said, hey, this is great. My wife got it for me. But what was so cool about getting the machine was it came with you know a bunch of pods, but it also came with these with these bags, and they have a whole recycling program to where you know instead of throwing out the pods, you can put them in these little bags and send it back, and, and they will recycle them. And it just the point of having that program and seeing that collateral in the package that I got, it really made me think higher of of Nespresso, right? And I I, I do think there is. For the ones that are taking this on, it does create a, an incredible moment like that. For me, Nespresso absolutely kind of got in my brain. So important. 
Okay, so let's shift to returns for a moment. And I want to talk a little bit about re-commerce, right? So this really continues to, to grow as a viable channel. There was a recent ThreadUp report on the used clothing market saying that it was going to double in the next five years to something like $77 billion. Uh, I saw another study that's at 80, so you know, triangulating, those seem both pretty close. Here's the contrast. Five years into the future, if you look at the fast fashion apparel category, they were pegging that to be 43 billion. So about, you know, call it half less, right? We know there are, there are some traditional retailers like Anthropology and Madewell that are starting to sell gently used clothing and a few others. And so, you know, look, I think the cost of returns are sizable for merchants, but, you know, there, there's obviously an environmental play here as well, right? Lessening returns keeps waste out of the landfills. It also lessens the production needs, right? Uh, you know, satisfying more consumers with a single item. So, you know, for this to work for retailers, they've really got to have the right returns process in place. They've got to be able to inspect. They've got to be able to refurbish. They've got to be able to, to resell these returned items. And that is something that Pitney does. Mike, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, our returns process in that light. But this, this idea of e-commerce seems to be gaining steam, not just from a, a cost of returns, even more importantly, from an environmental standpoint. Yeah, John, it's a great point. I think that when you look at how much goes into landfill and your previous comment, you know, you're talking about a circular environment or a circular, you know, commerce, right, where it, you just keep either reusing, reducing Companies like ThreadUp, it's fantastic, right? You some They'll even sell items that are new with tag. And you have to think about that, right? What if you either you bought something, forgot about it, didn't wear it, it didn't fit, or somebody gave it to you and you just, you know, they have this whole thing. It's a, a clean-out bag, right? So you you take a pretty large bag, plastic polymail, and you load up what you have in your closet that you're not wearing and should be either, you know, in very good condition, et cetera. Well, somebody else obviously can buy it and there's many great brands on there and you buy it at a discount. But the main thing too is like, what else would you do with it? Would you maybe donate those clothes? Maybe, but many times they say, you know, that it's going into landfill. You think about though getting it back to somebody like a thread up and there's many others, you know, the real real does more higher end stuff as well. And there's many companies now where if you look at Trove, they are supporting multiple brands where they, they could even do some repair of the items. There's another company up in Portland that does the same thing. So you kind of get that, you know, that repair aspect. Patagonia will take back anything, right? It's always been part of their culture, if you will. But you got to look at that. You're like, if you don't have a store where you're bringing it back, then what should you do? I mean, I think it's kind of, you know, again, going back to the, hey, if the post office shows up to your house every day, could you take those return bags or send these items and have it only at your doorstep, right? You're not driving out. You're not creating any more carbon output. You're not uh, burning any more fuel. And so if you think about it from an end to end, there you go, right? It delivers to your door. It's picked up from your door and uh, it can be redone and, and reused or re or sold. So the re-commerce business is certainly very big. I know there's a lot. Companies have done this on the the business to business side for years and years, right? That you know, you go to a manufacturer, you you buy things for pennies on the dollar at closeout or it's last year's models, and then you go ahead and resell it. And then maybe at some point it gets down to like a, a one to one consumer transaction. But 
you know, companies like ThreadUp kind of figured it out where there's an element of peer-to-peer perhaps. Uh, and there's certainly so many companies as well selling handbags and things like that. Same thing. It's all re-commerce. It's a great way to have good, high-quality merchandise that is able to have a much longer life cycle where, where somebody else can use it and, and keep it out of landfill. Yep. Sylvan, has, has re-commerce taken hold in France as well? Uh, do you see that there? Well, it's clearly the case, of course, yes. It's interesting because we we see all the good and the bad reason, and that's the type of situation where we, we love to hate e-commerce for all sorts of reasons. But when you look at it, when you look at the stats, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, there is a disconnect be- between what we say and what we do. Yes, more, more seriously, it's an opportunity for me also to back on, uh, on one case. When we, we look at the potential disconnect between the brick and mortar type of commerce and the, and the e-commerce, and you mentioned at the early stage of a discussion, this sort of a migration out of the cities toward the more rural areas. Well, when we take into account of sort of a the network of uh, delivery vans uh, already on the road visiting uh, addresses all the addresses six days a week they are full of stuff to deliver and when you compare it to you taking your own car to go to the local shop and taking into account that maybe you are leaving further and further away from the local shop when you compare the two yeah e-commerce put a lot more vans on the road these vans are full your car you just pick up one or a couple of things. So, yeah, we, we see the sort of, for both uh, the delivery and the return, the sort of a discussion, oh, more vans in the city centers, but aren't more van, efficient van, better van, a lot more cars with one person in it and, and just one parcel in it? That's That's a different discussion. But yeah, to answer your question, there's definitely more and more e-commerce and it's going in one direction only, clearly. Yeah, yeah. And you're kind of teasing metrics, right? And I I think it's an important thing to think about, especially, you know, you're considering cars, you know, vans, planes, right? Is you kind of have that, how will I say it, the productivity of how many people are in that thing, right? Or how many parcels are going? What what is the productivity there that becomes part of the math on when you decide, okay, what on a kind of per capita basis, what is more environmentally friendly, right? And I think that's kind of what you were teasing with, which is good sustainability math. And I'm not sure everyone thinks about, but it is important to really kind of contemplate that. So that was part one of our sustainability conversation with John, Mike, and Sylvan. In part two, you're going to hear the most effective ways for retailers to use sustainability incentives to reduce return rates. You heard that right, reduce return rates with sustainability incentives and how much consumers would be willing to pay to offset the carbon footprint of their online orders. Also, steps that we at Pitney Bowes are taking to proactively address our climate impact. You should go check this out right now. See you soon.